Day 6 of Totus Tuus' Novena, with quotes from John Paul II's encyclical, Evangelium Vitae. At the other end of life's spectrum, men and women find themselves facing the mystery of death. Today, as a result of advances in medicine, and in a cultural context frequently closed to the transcendent, the experience of dying is marked by new features. When the prevailing tendency is to value life only to the extent that it brings pleasure and well-being, suffering seems like an unbearable setback, something from which one must be freed at all costs. Death is considered senseless if it suddenly interrupts a life still open to a future of new and interesting experiences, but it becomes a rightful liberation once life is held to be no longer meaningful because it is filled with pain and inexorably doomed to even greater suffering. Furthermore, when he denies or neglects his fundamental relationship to God, man thinks he is his own rule and measure, with a right to demand that society should guarantee him the ways and means of deciding what to do with his life in full and complete autonomy. It is especially people in the developed countries who act in this way, they feel encouraged to do so also by the constant progress of medicine and its ever more advanced techniques. By using highly sophisticated systems and equipment, science and medical practice today are able not only to attend to cases formerly considered untreatable and to reduce or eliminate pain, but also to sustain and prolong life even in situations of extreme frailty, to resuscitate artificially patients whose basic biological functions have undergone sudden collapse, and to use special procedures to make organs available for transplanting. In this context, the temptation grows to have recourse to euthanasia, that is, to take control of death and bring it about before its time, gently ending one's own life or the life of others. In reality, what might seem logical and humane when looked at more closely, is seen to be senseless and inhumane. Here we are faced with one of the more alarming symptoms of the culture of death, which is advancing above all in prosperous societies, marked by an attitude of excessive preoccupation with efficiency, and which sees the growing number of elderly and disabled people as intolerable and too burdensome. These people are very often isolated by their families and by society, which are organized almost exclusively on the basis of criteria of productive efficiency, according to which a hopelessly impaired life no longer has any value. For a correct moral judgment on euthanasia, in the first place a clear definition is required. Euthanasia, in a strict sense, is understood to be an action or omission, which of itself and by intention causes death with the purpose of eliminating all suffering. Euthanasia's terms of reference, therefore, are to be found in the intention of the will and in the methods used. Euthanasia must be distinguished from the decision to forego so-called aggressive medical treatment, in other words, medical procedures which no longer correspond to the real situation of the patient, either because they are by now disproportionate to any expected results or because they impose an excessive burden on the patient and his family. In such situations, 
when death is clearly imminent and inevitable, one can, in conscience, refuse forms of treatment that would only secure a precarious and burdensome prolongation of life. So long as the normal care due to the sick person in similar cases is not interrupted, certainly there is a moral obligation to care for oneself and to allow oneself to be cared for. But this duty must take account of concrete circumstances. It needs to be determined whether the means of treatment available are objectively proportionate to the prospects for improvement. To forego extraordinary or disproportionate means is not the equivalent of suicide or euthanasia. It rather expresses acceptance of the human condition in the face of death. In modern medicine, increased attention is being given to what are called methods of palliative care, which seek to make suffering more bearable in the final stages of illness, and to ensure that the patient is supported and accompanied in his or her ordeal. Among the questions which arise in this context is that of the licitness of using various types of painkillers and sedatives for relieving the patient's pain when this involves the risk of shortening life. While praise may be due to the person who voluntarily accepts suffering by foregoing treatment with painkillers in order to remain fully lucid and, if a believer, to share consciously in the Lord's passion, such heroic behaviour cannot be considered the duty of everyone. Pius XII affirmed that it is licit to relieve pain by narcotics, even when the result is decreased consciousness and a shortening of life. If no other means exist, and if, in the given circumstances, this does not prevent the carrying out of other religious and moral duties. In such a case, death is not willed or sought, even though for reasonable motives one runs the risk of it. There is simply a desire to ease pain effectively by using the analgesics which medicine provides. All the same, it is not right to deprive the dying person of consciousness without a serious reason. As they approach death, people ought to be able to satisfy their moral and family duties, and above all, they ought to be able to prepare in a fully conscious way for their definitive meeting with God. Taking into account these distinctions, in harmony with the magisterium of my predecessors, and in communion with the bishops of the Catholic Church, I confirm that euthanasia is a grave violation of the law of God since it is the deliberate and morally unacceptable killing of a human person. This doctrine is based upon the natural law and upon the written word of God, is transmitted by the Church's tradition and taught by the ordinary and universal magisterium. Depending on the circumstances, this practice involves the malice proper to suicide or murder. Suicide is always as morally objectionable as murder. The Church's tradition has always rejected it as a gravely evil choice. Even though a certain psychological, cultural and social conditioning may induce a person to carry out an action which so radically contradicts the innate inclination to life, thus lessening or removing subjective responsibility. Suicide, when viewed objectively, is a gravely immoral act. In fact, it involves the rejection of love of self and the renunciation of the obligation of justice and charity towards one's neighbour 
towards the communities to which one belongs, and towards society as a whole. In its deepest reality, suicide represents a rejection of God's absolute sovereignty over life and death, as proclaimed in the prayer of the ancient sage of Israel. You have power over life and death. You lead men down to the gates of Hades and back again. To concur with the intention of another person to commit suicide and to help in carrying it out through so-called assisted suicide means to cooperate in and at times to be the actual perpetrator of an injustice which can never be excused, even if it is requested. In a remarkably relevant passage, St. Augustine writes that it is never licit to kill another, even if he should wish it, indeed if he request it because Hanging between life and death, he begs for help in freeing the soul struggling against the bonds of the body and longing to be released. Nor is it licit even when a sick person is no longer able to live. Even when not motivated by a selfish refusal to be burdened with the life of someone who is suffering, euthanasia must be called a false mercy, and indeed a disturbing perversion of mercy. True compassion leads to sharing another's pain. It does not kill the person whose suffering we cannot bear. Moreover, the act of euthanasia appears all the more perverse if it is carried out by those, like relatives, who are supposed to treat a family member with patience and love, or by those, such as doctors, who by virtue of their specific profession are supposed to care for the sick person even in the most painful terminal stages. The choice of euthanasia becomes more serious when it takes the form of a murder committed by others on a person who has in no way requested it and who has never consented to it. The height of arbitrariness and injustice is reached when certain people, such as physicians or legislators, arrogate to themselves the power to decide who ought to live and who ought to die. Once again, we find ourselves before the temptation of Eden, to become like God, who knows good and evil. God alone has the power over life and death. It is I who bring both death and life. But he only exercises this power in accordance with a plan of wisdom and love. When man usurps this power, being enslaved by a foolish and selfish way of thinking, he inevitably uses it for injustice and death. Thus the life of the person who is weak is put into the hands of the one who is strong. In society the sense of justice is lost, and mutual trust, the basis of every authentic interpersonal relationship, is undermined at its root. Quite different from this is the way of love and true mercy, which our common humanity calls for, and upon which faith in Christ the Redeemer, who died and rose again, sheds ever new light. The request which arises from the human heart in the supreme confrontation with suffering and death, especially when faced with the temptation to give up in utter desperation, is above all a request for companionship, sympathy and support in the time of trial. It is a plea for help to keep on hoping when all human hopes fail. As the Second Vatican Council reminds us, It is in the face of death that the riddle of human existence becomes most acute. And yet, 
man rightly follows the intuition of his heart when he abhors and repudiates the absolute ruin and total disappearance of his own person. Man rebels against death because he bears in himself an eternal seed which cannot be reduced to mere matter. This natural aversion to death and this incipient hope of immortality are illumined and brought to fulfilment by Christian faith, which promises and offers a share in the victory of the risen Christ. It is the victory of the one who, by his redemptive death, has set man free from death, the wages of sin, and has given him the Spirit, the pledge of resurrection and of life. The certainty of future immortality and hope in the promised resurrection cast new light on the mystery of suffering and death, and filled the believer with an extraordinary capacity to trust fully in the plan of God. The Apostle Paul expressed this newness in terms of belonging completely to the Lord, who embraces every human condition. None of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Dying to the Lord means experiencing one's death as the supreme act of obedience to the Father, being ready to meet death at the hour willed and chosen by Him, which can only mean when one's earthly pilgrimage is completed. Living to the Lord also means recognizing that suffering, while still an evil and a trial in itself, can always become a source of good. It becomes such if it is experienced for love and with love, through sharing, by God's gracious gift and one's own personal and free choice, in the suffering of Christ crucified. In this way, the person who lives his suffering in the Lord grows more fully conformed to him, and more closely associated with his redemptive work on behalf of the Church and humanity. This was the experience of St. Paul, which every person who suffers is called to relive. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the Church. One of the specific characteristics of present-day attacks on human life, as has already been said several times, consists in the trend to demand a legal justification for them, as if they were rights which the state, at least under certain conditions, must acknowledge as belonging to citizens. Consequently, there is a tendency to claim that it should be possible to exercise these rights with the safe and free assistance of doctors and medical personnel. It is often claimed that the life of an unborn child or a seriously disabled person is only a relative good. According to a proportionalist approach, or one of sheer calculation, this good should be compared with and balanced against other goods. It is even maintained that only someone present and personally involved in a concrete situation can correctly judge the goods at stake. Consequently, only that person would be able to decide on the morality of his choice. The state, therefore, in the interest of civil coexistence and social harmony, should respect this choice, even to the point of permitting abortion and euthanasia. At other times, 
It is claimed that civil law cannot demand that all citizens should live according to moral standards higher than what all citizens themselves acknowledge and share. Hence, the law should always express the opinion and will of the majority of citizens and recognise that they have, at least in certain extreme cases, the right even to abortion and euthanasia. Moreover, the prohibition and the punishment of abortion and euthanasia in these cases would inevitably lead, so it is said, to an increase of illegal practices, and these would not be subject to necessary control by society and would be carried out in a medically unsafe way. The question is also raised whether supporting a law which in practice cannot be enforced would ultimately undermine the authority of all laws. Finally, the more radical views go so far as to maintain that in a modern and pluralistic society people should be allowed complete freedom to dispose of their own lives as well as the lives of the unborn. It is asserted that it is not the task of the law to choose between different moral opinions and still less can the law claim to impose one particular opinion to the detriment of others. In any case, in the democratic culture of our time, it is commonly held that the legal system of any society should limit itself to taking account of and accepting the convictions of the majority. It should therefore be based solely upon what the majority itself considers moral and actually practices. Furthermore, if it is believed that an objective truth shared by all is de facto unattainable, then respect for the freedom of the citizens, who in a democratic system are considered the true rulers, would require that, on the legislative level, the autonomy of individual consciences be acknowledged. Consequently, when establishing those norms which are absolutely necessary for social coexistence, the only determining factor should be the will of the majority, whatever this may be. Hence, every politician in his or her activity should clearly separate the realm of private conscience from that of public conduct. As a result, we have what appear to be two diametrically opposed tendencies. On the one hand, individuals claim for themselves in the moral sphere the most complete freedom of choice and demand that the state should not adopt or impose any ethical position, but limit itself to guaranteeing maximum space for the freedom of each individual, with the sole limitation of not infringing on the freedom and rights of any other citizen. On the other hand, it is held that in the exercise of public and professional duties, respect for other people's freedom of choice requires that each one should set aside his or her own convictions in order to satisfy every demand of the citizens which is recognised and guaranteed by law. In carrying out one's duties, the only moral criterion should be what is laid down by the law itself. Individual responsibility is thus turned over to the civil law with a renouncing of personal conscience, at least in the public sphere. At the basis of all these tendencies lies the ethical relativism, which characterises much of present-day culture. There are those who consider such relativism an essential condition of democracy, inasmuch as it alone is held to guarantee tolerance, mutual respect between people, and acceptance of the decisions of the majority whereas moral norms considered to be objective and binding are held to lead to authoritarianism and intolerance. But it is precisely the issue of respect for life which shows what misunderstandings and contradictions, accompanied by terrible practical consequences, 
are concealed in this position. It is true that history has known cases where crimes have been committed in the name of truth. But equally grave crimes and radical denials of freedom have also been committed and are still being committed in the name of ethical relativism. When a parliamentary or social majority decrees that it is legal, at least under certain conditions, to kill unborn human life, is it not really making a tyrannical decision with regard to the weakest and most defenceless of human beings? Everyone's conscience rightly rejects those crimes against humanity of which our century has had such sad experience. But would these crimes cease to be crimes if, instead of being committed by unscrupulous tyrants, they were legitimated by popular consensus? Democracy cannot be idolised to the point of making it a substitute for morality or a panacea for immorality. Fundamentally, democracy is a system and as such is a means and not an end. Its moral value is not automatic but depends on conformity to the moral law to which it, like every other form of human behaviour, must be subject. In other words, its morality depends on the morality of the ends which it pursues and of the means which it employs. If today we see an almost universal consensus with regard to the value of democracy, this is to be considered a positive sign of the times, as the Church's Magisterium has frequently noted. But the value of democracy stands or falls with the values which it embodies and promotes. Of course, values such as the dignity of every human person, respect for inviolable and inalienable human rights, and the adoption of the common good as the end and criterion regulating political life are certainly fundamental and not to be ignored. The basis of these values cannot be provisional and changeable majority opinions, but only the acknowledgement of an objective moral law which, as the natural law written in the human heart, is the obligatory point of reference for civil law itself. If, as a result of a tragic obscuring of the collective conscience, an attitude of scepticism were to succeed in bringing into question even the fundamental principles of the moral law, the democratic system itself would be shaken in its foundations and would be reduced to a mere mechanism for regulating different and opposing interests on a purely empirical basis. Some might think that even this function, in the absence of anything better, should be valued for the sake of peace in society. While one acknowledges some element of truth in this point of view, it is easy to see that without an objective moral grounding, not even democracy is capable of ensuring a stable peace, especially since peace which is not built upon the values of the dignity of every individual and of solidarity between all people frequently proves to be illusory. Even in participatory systems of government, the regulation of interests often occurs to the advantage of the most powerful, since they are the ones most capable of manoeuvring not only the levers of power, but also of shaping the formation of the consensus. In such a situation, democracy easily becomes an empty word. It is therefore urgently necessary for the future of society and the development of a sound democracy to rediscover those essential and innate human and moral values which flow from the very truth of the human being and express and safeguard the dignity of the person. 
values which no individual, no majority, and no state can ever create, modify, or destroy, but must only acknowledge, respect, and promote. Consequently, there is a need to recover the basic elements of a vision of the relationship between civil law and moral law, which are put forward by the Church, but which are also part of the patrimony of the great juridical traditions of humanity. Certainly the purpose of civil law is different and more limited in scope than that of the moral law, but in no sphere of life can the civil law take the place of conscience or dictate norms concerning things which are outside its competence, which is that of ensuring the common good of people through the recognition and defence of their fundamental rights and the promotion of peace and of public morality. The real purpose of civil law is to guarantee an ordered social coexistence in true justice so that all may lead a quiet and peaceable life, godly and respectful in every way. Precisely for this reason, Civil law must ensure that all members of society enjoy respect for certain fundamental rights which innately belong to the person, rights which every positive law must recognize and guarantee. First and fundamental among these is the inviolable right of life of every innocent human being. While public authority can sometimes choose not to put a stop to something which, were it prohibited, would cause more serious harm, it can never presume to legitimize as the right of individuals, even if they are the majority of the members of society, an offence against other persons caused by the disregard of so fundamental a right as the right to life. The legal toleration of abortion or of euthanasia can in no way claim to be based on respect for the conscience of others, precisely because society has the right and the duty to protect itself against the abuses which can occur in the name of conscience and under the pretext of freedom. In the encyclical Parchem in Terrace, John XXIII pointed out that it is generally accepted today that the common good is best safeguarded when personal rights and duties are guaranteed. The chief concern of civil authorities must therefore be to ensure that these rights are recognised, respected coordinated, defended and promoted, and that each individual is enabled to perform his duties more easily. For, to safeguard the inviolable rights of the human person, and to facilitate the performance of his duties, is the principal duty of every public authority. Thus, any government which refused to recognise human rights, or acted in violation of them, would not only fail in its duty, its decrees would be wholly lacking in binding force. The doctrine on the necessary conformity of civil law with the moral law is in continuity with the whole tradition of the Church. This is clear once more from John XXIII's encyclical. Authority is a postulate of the moral order and derives from God. Consequently, laws and decrees enacted in contravention of the moral order and hence of the divine will, can have no binding force in conscience. Indeed, the passing of such laws undermines the very nature of authority and results in shameful abuse. This is the clear teaching of St. Thomas Aquinas, who writes that human law is law inasmuch as it is in conformity with right reason and thus derives from the eternal law. But when a law is contrary to reason, 
it is called an unjust law, but in this case it ceases to be a law and becomes instead an act of violence. And again, every law made by man can be called a law in so far as it derives from the natural law. But if it is somehow opposed to the natural law, then it is not really a law, but rather a corruption of the law. Now the first and most immediate application of this teaching concerns a human law which disregards the fundamental right and source of all other rights, which is the right to life, a right belonging to every individual. Consequently, laws which legitimize the direct killing of innocent human beings through abortion or euthanasia are in complete opposition to the inviolable right to life proper to every individual. They thus deny the equality of everyone before the law. It might be objected that such is not the case in euthanasia when it is requested with full awareness by the person involved. But any state which made such a request legitimate and authorized it to be carried out would be legalizing a case of suicide murder, contrary to the fundamental principles of absolute respect for life and of the protection of every innocent life. In this way, the state contributes to lessening respect for life and opens the door to ways of acting which are destructive of trust in relations between people. Laws which authorize and promote abortion and euthanasia are therefore radically opposed not only to the good of the individual, but also to the common good. As such, they are completely lacking in authentic juridical validity. Disregard for the right to life, precisely because it leads to the killing of the person whom society exists to serve, is what most directly conflicts with the possibility of achieving the common good. Consequently, a civil law authorizing abortion or euthanasia ceases by that very fact to be a true morally binding civil law. Abortion and euthanasia are thus crimes which no human law can claim to legitimize. There is no obligation in conscience to obey such laws. Instead, there is a grave and clear obligation to oppose them by conscientious objection. From the very beginnings of the Church, the apostolic preaching reminded Christians of their duty to obey legitimately constituted public authorities. But at the same time, it firmly warned that we must obey God rather than men. In the Old Testament, precisely in regard to threats against life, we find a significant example of resistance to the unjust command of those in authority. After Pharaoh ordered the killing of all newborn males, the Hebrew midwives refused. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. But the ultimate reason for their action should be noted. The midwives feared God. It is precisely from obedience to God, to whom alone is due that fear, which is acknowledgement of his absolute sovereignty, that the strength and the courage to resist unjust human laws are born. It is the strength and the courage of those prepared even to be imprisoned or put to the sword, in the certainty that this is what makes for the endurance and faith of the saints. In the case of an intrinsically unjust law, such as a law permitting abortion or euthanasia, it is therefore never licit to obey or to take part in a propaganda campaign in favour of such a law or vote for it. A particular problem of conscience can arise 
in cases where a legislative vote will be decisive for the passage of a more restrictive law, aimed at limiting the number of authorised abortions, in place of a more permissive law already passed and ready to be voted on. Such cases are not infrequent. It is a fact that while in some parts of the world there continue to be campaigns to introduce laws favouring abortion, often supported by powerful international organisations. In other nations, particularly those which have already experienced the bitter fruits of such permissive legislation, there are growing signs of a rethinking in this matter. In a case like the one just mentioned, when it is not possible to overturn or completely abrogate a pro-abortion law, an elected official, whose absolute personal opposition to procured abortion was well known, could licitly support proposals aimed at limiting the harm done by such a law and at lessening its negative consequences at the level of general opinion and public morality. This does not, in fact, represent an illicit cooperation with an unjust law, but rather a legitimate and proper attempt to limit its evil aspects. The passing of unjust laws often raises difficult problems of conscience for morally upright people with regard to the issue of cooperation since they have a right to demand not to be forced to take part in morally evil actions. Sometimes the choices which have to be made are difficult. They may require the sacrifice of prestigious professional positions or the relinquishing of reasonable hopes of career advancement. In other cases, it can happen that carrying out certain actions, which are provided for by legislation that overall is unjust, but which in themselves are indifferent, or even positive, can serve to protect human lives under threat. There may be reason to fear, however, that willingness to carry out such actions will not only cause scandal and weaken the necessary opposition to attacks on life, but will gradually lead to further capitulation to a mentality of permissiveness. In order to shed light on this difficult question, it is necessary to recall the general principles concerning cooperation in evil actions. Christians, like all people of good will, are called upon under grave obligation of conscience not to cooperate formally in practices which, even if permitted by civil legislation, are contrary to God's law. Indeed, from the moral standpoint, it is never licit to cooperate formally in evil. Such cooperation occurs when an action, either by its very nature or by the form it takes in a concrete situation, can be defined as a direct participation in an act against innocent human life, or a sharing in the immoral intention of the person committing it. This cooperation can never be justified, either by invoking respect for the freedom of others, or by appealing to the fact that civil law permits it or requires it. Each individual, in fact, has moral responsibility for the acts which he personally performs. No one can be exempted from this responsibility, and on the basis of it, everyone will be judged by God himself. To refuse to take part in committing an injustice is not only a moral duty, it is also a basic human right. Were this not so, the human person would be forced to perform an action intrinsically incompatible with human dignity, and in this way human freedom itself the authentic meaning and purpose of which are found in its orientation to the true and the good, would be radically compromised. What is at stake, therefore, is an essential right which, precisely as such, 
should be acknowledged and protected by civil law. In this sense, the opportunity to refuse to take part in the phases of consultation, preparation and execution of these acts against life should be guaranteed to physicians, healthcare personnel and directors of hospitals, clinics and convalescent facilities. Those who have recourse to conscientious objection must be protected not only from legal penalties but also from any negative effects on the legal, disciplinary, financial and professional plane. God's commandments teach us the way of life. The negative moral precepts, which declare that the choice of certain actions is morally unacceptable, have an absolute value for human freedom. They are valid always and everywhere, without exception. They make it clear that the choice of certain ways of acting is radically incompatible with the love of God and with the dignity of the person created in his image. Such choices cannot be redeemed by the goodness of any intention or of any consequence. They are irrevocably opposed to the bond between persons. They contradict the fundamental decision to direct one's life to God. In this sense, the negative moral precepts have an extremely important positive function. The no, which they unconditionally require, makes clear the absolute limit beneath which free individuals cannot lower themselves. At the same time, they indicate the minimum which they must respect and from which they must start out in order to say yes over and over again, a yes which will gradually embrace the entire horizon of the good. The commandments, in particular the negative moral precepts, are the beginning and the first necessary stage of the journey towards freedom. As St. Augustine writes, the beginning of freedom is to be free from crimes, from murder, adultery, fornication, theft, fraud, sacrilege and so forth. Only when one stops committing these crimes, and no Christian should commit them, one begins to lift up one's head towards freedom. But this is only the beginning of freedom, not perfect freedom. The commandment, you shall not kill, thus establishes the point of departure for the start of true freedom. It leads us to promote life actively and to develop particular ways of thinking and acting which serve life. In this way, we exercise our responsibility towards the persons entrusted to us and we show, in deeds and in truth, our gratitude to God for the great gift of life. The Creator has entrusted man's life to his responsible concern, not to make arbitrary use of it, but to preserve it with wisdom and to care for it with loving fidelity. The God of the Covenant has entrusted the life of every individual to his or her fellow human beings, brothers and sisters, according to the law of reciprocity in giving and receiving, of self-giving and the acceptance of others. In the fullness of time, by taking flesh and giving his life for us, the Son of God showed what heights and depths this law of reciprocity can reach. With the gift of his Spirit, Christ gives new content and meaning to the law of reciprocity, to our being entrusted to one another. The Spirit who builds up communion and love creates between us a new fraternity and solidarity 
a true reflection of the mystery of mutual self-giving and receiving, proper to the Most Holy Trinity. The Spirit becomes the new law which gives strength to believers and awakens in them a responsibility for sharing the gift of self and for accepting others, as a sharing in the boundless love of Jesus Christ himself. This new law also gives spirit and shape to the commandment, You shall not kill. For the Christian, it involves an absolute imperative to respect, love, and promote the life of every brother and sister, in accordance with the requirements of God's bountiful love in Jesus Christ. He laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. The commandment, you shall not kill, even in its more positive aspects of respecting, loving and promoting human life, is binding on every individual human being. It resounds in the moral conscience of everyone as an irrepressible echo of the original covenant of God the Creator with mankind. It can be recognized by everyone through the light of reason, and it can be observed thanks to the mysterious working of the Spirit, who, blowing where he wills, comes to and involves every person living in this world. It is therefore a service of love which we are all committed to ensure to our neighbour, that his or her life may be always defended and promoted, especially when it is weak or threatened. It is not only a personal but a social concern which we must all foster, a concern to make unconditional respect for human life, the foundation of a renewed society. We are asked to love and honour the life of every man and woman and to work with perseverance and courage so that our time, marked by all too many signs of death, may at last witness the establishment of a new culture of life, the fruit of the culture of truth and of love. Let us pray. O Mary, bright dawn of the new world, Mother of the living, to you do we entrust the cause of life. Look down, O Mother, upon the vast number of babies not allowed to be born, of the poor whose lives are made difficult, of men and women who are victims of brutal violence, of the elderly and the sick, killed by indifference or out of misguided mercy. Grant that all who believe in your Son may proclaim the gospel of life with honesty and love to the people of our time. Obtain for them the grace to accept that gospel as a gift ever new, the joy of celebrating it with gratitude throughout their lives, and the courage to bear witness to it resolutely, in order to build, together with all people of good will, the civilization of truth and love, to the praise and glory of God, the creator and lover of life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.